Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you, 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter. 1 Corinthians 16. If you do not have a Bible, there are some available on the table back there. Please take one. If you know somebody who needs one, please take it and give it to them. Love to have God's word in front of people. 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter. I'm going to be honest, I struggled to prepare this week to preach 1 Corinthians 16. One, the end of 1 Corinthians. That's cool. We started it in October of 2019, and it's now 2022. So, and we had a long break in there, but uh, coming to the end of it, the reason that I struggled is because 1 Corinthians 15 is probably one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, and that's what we're coming off of, and in light of that, I kept looking at 16, I'm like, I have no idea, I don't even know what there is to preach here after all of 1 Corinthians 15. There was so much doctrine and so many heavy topics touched on through 15 that I wasn't sure what we were going to actually find in 16. In fact, if you're anything like me as you read the Bible, especially Paul's letters, when you come to the end of the epistles, the letters of Paul, you get into the and so on and so forth and such and such and see you later. Uh, He's just kind of wrapping up his letters to them. And they can be, I don't know, maybe if you're anything like me, sometimes you just skip like the last set of verses in a chapter of Paul's writing because, you know, he's just talking about so-and-so and such and such and this place and that place and I want to travel to it. And to be honest with you, that's precisely what 1 Corinthians 16 is. He is situating his farewell to the Corinthian church. Chapter 15 covered a lot. I'm not sure, coming off of all that he has written, if we consider all of 1 Corinthians 1 through 15, wow, has he covered some room. Like, it hasn't been, this is not the letter to the Philippian church that, like, they read in probably 20 minutes. This is, okay, everybody, we got to take a break because this is heavy and hard, and we got to, well, let's come back to this tomorrow. I don't know how you actually, if you're the Apostle Paul, I don't know how you write anything after chapter 15 other than farewell. Fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul was divinely carried along by the Spirit of God as God spoke to him and he wrote. That's why we have the Bible. And even in the farewells and even in the plans and the longings, there are things for us to grasp. I want you to write this. I want you to etch this in the concrete of your mind. There's not a word of scripture that we should neglect. It's all there. It's all important. We struggle to see the importance. We struggle to understand. But every word that God gave us in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, old and new, 39 books, 27 books, every word that God gave us is there for a reason. And so we're not just to neglect over it. We're not just to gloss over it. And so I'm not going to just, well, and Paul is wrapping up his letter. Let's review everything else we've talked about. No, there are things that we need to look for. And I pray that God helps me to extract from God's word what is valuable for us as we read what was necessary in Paul's time. The process is called exegesis. What an awful sounding word the exegetical process, like a glimpse into how your pastor prepares. Preachers of the Bible, teachers of the Bible should be looking for what was written, to whom, for what purpose, and what did it mean? 
We look at, we're not changing the meaning of Scripture, do you understand? This doesn't mean something different for us. It applies differently to us. God's word has one meaning. So as Paul is finishing his letter to the Corinthians, as he's wrapping this up, what did he write to them? What did it mean for them? And what do we draw from that meaning? The exegetical process. I'm not perfect at it. I struggle at it. Sometimes I don't even know if I do it well. Sometimes I don't know if I'd even do it at all. But that is what a good Bible preacher and teacher should be doing. What was written to them then? How does that look to the cross of Christ? Because all of the pages of Scripture speak to Christ. Christ himself tells us that. All Scripture. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, it's all about me. Jesus is the only one that can say that. He's the only man that can stand in front of a church and preach about himself. Because all of Scripture is about him. How does this passage, what did it mean to them then? What was the bearing and the meaning for them? How does it look to Jesus Christ and how does it apply to us today? This is the the path that I try to walk week in and week out for the sake of the ministry of the village church. He's come through 15, heavy doctrine, a lot of things. He moves into 16. We're going to see, before we read it here, we're going to see twice the phrase, now concerning I just want to point out, we're going to see it twice in verse 1, and we're going to see it in verse 12. This calls back, if you want to turn and see it, you can. This calls back to chapter 7, which we covered sometime in probably January. I didn't look at the date. It was probably January 2020 when I preached 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, So that was a long time ago. In fact, you know what? It was, I think it was December. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And we identified at that point in time, the Corinthians had wrote questions to the, to the apostle. They had things they wanted to know, things that would help them as a church. We have questions. What do we do? And so as we trail through chapter 7, chapter 8, if you look at chapter eight, uh, 7, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 1, if you come into chapter 11, now I commend, but for this I will not. Chapter 12, now concerning. He's going to say this, and then he comes to saying it, in chapter 16, again, now concerning. So what we are reading now, we understand, is a response. We don't have the questions. We don't know what the Corinthians asked. All we have are the responses from Paul to the Corinthian church. If you would read with me, I'm actually going to read the whole chapter really quick, 23 verses, because the next three weeks we're going to hang out in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. 
Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their home, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful for a time to come to your word. Thankful, Father, that you have afforded this opportunity in our life. You have brought us to this moment. And so in this time, we pray, God, that you would instruct us according to the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would speak to my heart as you speak through me. God, I pray that today our time in your word will be beneficial for the village church, and I pray that it will bring glory to your name in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. I could not extract a sermon title from verses 1 through 11. We're just going to look at 16, 1 through 11. And I could not extract a sermon title from it. I've become a fan of trying to find that title right there. What I realized was that the sermon itself kind of titled itself out of what is happening in verses 1 through 11. So I titled it, The Church Should Be. I don't think I put it up there, but it could have like a dot, dot, dot. I thought maybe this is a part one because I think it's probably going to continue next week as we work through the rest of chapter 16. The point being, there are principles found in what Paul writes to the Corinthian church that we should be paying attention to today. Principles that Paul, that that are drawn out of what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. So today, verses 1 through 11, the church should be, I have three points. One, the church should be a giving church. Two, the church should be a Lord willing church. And three, the church should be a helpful church church. We're going to look at those three things today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 1, Paul starts by writing, now concerning the collection for the saints. It's everybody's favorite topic in church. Money, great collection. If you came here today and you thought, I'm going to try going to a church today, you walked in, you're like, I knew it, here we go. This church is going to talk about money. That's all churches. The perception of the world is that all churches want is money. We just want their money. I, I understand why they think that. At the same time, I don't know why they think that, but I do understand why they think that. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, we're going to talk about money, kind of. What we're really going to talk about is what a church should do with not only their money, but with the resources they have. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Verse 1 is pretty straightforward. Paul is writing to one church, Corinth, referencing the example of other churches, Galatia, as I directed the churches of Galatia. Paul is writing to one church, Corinth, referencing the example of other churches in the province of Galatia, that they should be setting contributions aside each week. So is the church to set this aside, or are the individuals to set this aside? There's some ambiguity in this. We're not going to read, in fact, well, I take it back, we are going to read, on the first day of the week, verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. 
Like immediately we can see a straight line connection to this is why when churches come together, churches pass an offering plate, they pass a velvet-covered offering bag with weird wooden handles, whatever. Churches take up collections on a Sunday. Why do they do that? Because we see saints in the New Testament gathering and taking up collections for things. What are those collections for? The Bible is clear. The maintenance of churches, the provision and care of ministers, and as we're going to learn today, the care of saints that are not here. So we're going to talk about money, but we're not going to talk about our use for our purposes. We're going to talk about our use for God's purposes, including whatever just fell behind me. That was cool. We'll figure it out later. They're to take up money. Once a week, they're to collect it. What you are not going to find is, are they supposed to collect it on a Sunday? Is the church supposed to collect it, or do they just keep it, and then what do they do? There's ambiguity there, so throughout the years it has become Christians gather, they give, the church holds on to, and then the church uses as opportunity arises for the care of the church, the support of the ministry, for the care of ministers, and for saints outside of themselves. This is all fairly straightforward. The interesting thing is that we don't have, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, because Paul wrote Galatians, we don't have his instructions to them. He says, concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia. We don't have those instructions. We do have a glimpse at them because he gives Corinth the same instructions. But Paul's letter to the Galatians does not contain that. So here we see what he said to Galatia, and that's a province kind of like Asia Minor, which is kind of the whole biblical region, kind of Asia Minor, that's churches scattered. And you'll remember that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. This is to a number of churches. And then also 1 Peter, and I believe 2 Peter as well, also Peter writing to Jews who were scattered in the province of Galatia. And he mentions several other prof, uh, provinces as well, churches. These are groups of churches. Paul is saying, as I instructed them, so also you are to do. How did he instruct them? Verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. <clears throat> now there's specific instruction. I took it line by line to help myself. Hopefully it helps us as well. On the first day of the week. This is the Lord's day. What is, we, we've talked about this here and there, this and that. What is the Lord's day? Throughout all of Christian history, the Lord's Day has been the first day of the week. Why? Because it says in Matthew, as it began to dawn, I've shared this with you numerous times over the last year, as it began to dawn on the first day of the week, the ladies went to the tomb and his body was not there. The Lord's Day is a reference to the day our Lord came out of the grave. And so Christians, here we are in 2022, it happened around, let's call it 35 AD for the sake of argument, happens in 35 AD, and here almost exactly 2,000 years later, Christians are still, vast majority throughout the world, still gathering on Sunday. Why? Because we don't just do the Easter thing on Easter Sunday once a year. The gathering of the church like every Sunday is Easter Sunday for the church, if you're with me. We gather, once a year's not enough. So people are like, oh man, Easter, I can't wait for Easter. Oh yeah, when was the last time you went to church? I didn't know you went to church. Oh, I only go on Easter. Cute. I go every Easter, every Sunday, every Lord's Day. The church gathers and they worship God because it is the day that Christians for centuries have recognized Christ came out of the grave, and we gather to worship him. On the first day of the week, Paul is talking about that day. Numerous references. You want to chase out a systematic study? Write down the words, on the first day of the week, and chase it through the New Testament. See the things that are happening through the New Testament on the first day of the week. It's amazing. 
on the first day of the week. Acts 20 mentions Christians gathering on the first day of the week. John has his revelation. The book of Revelation, which I love to bring up for the people who cringe at the thought of it. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. I was in prayer on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos with like, stay away from me, leprous people. And the vision was he say, behold, I heard behind me. Oh, it's beautiful. John references the Lord's day. Christians have always commemorated the day of the Lord coming out of the grave, the first day of the week. For us, that's Sunday. In some cultures, it's Saturday. In some cultures, it's Friday. Christians have a day they celebrate as the first day of the week. What are they supposed to do? Christians, on the first day of the week, are to put something aside and store it up. Put it aside, store it up. Whether you save it yourself and bring it, whether you bring it and it's stored collectively, whatever, put something aside and store it up. Implied, saved, given. They're not specifics. This is how we do things now. It's how things have grown over the centuries. But Christians still, the vast majority of us, let's face it, weekly, if you are being faithful to God, I need you to recognize this. Your giving is not your faithfulness to me or to this church. Your, your giving is faithfulness to God. We give of what we have because God has said, give. You don't give for my sake. You don't give for each other's sake. You give as a mark of your faithfulness to God. Put something aside. I love those words right there. Put something aside. Look at the words that follow. On the first day of the week, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Look at these words. As he may prosper. These are big words. How many of you have ever heard a pastor talk about giving in church and talk about as you may prosper? Why is no one raising their hand? Because in America, everybody prospers, right? We've all got, we all give. All of us have it. We don't, we, we don't even think about that we might not prosper, we always prosper, but to Christians in Corinth around, let's call it middle 50 AD, probably around 55, they think Paul may have written this letter, around 56 maybe, so somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, the thought of Christians not prospering was extremely real. As Paul writes this, as you prosper, put something aside, they know, Paul, I Things are getting difficult for Christians here in Corinth. And I'm not sure how much longer the Greek man that I work for is going to tolerate a Christian working for him. Things are getting really difficult for Christians. The persecution, and, 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 and pro, uh, the persecution of Christians is escalating through this time. It says, as he may prosper. There's a direct correlation to what Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians and what he will turn around and write to the second Corinthian letter. He's got two letters, first and second. It's believed that they were written within a year's time frame of one another. Can't pinpoint it, but they believe that within a year, Paul sends off 1 Corinthians. And if you want to challenge, we're wrapping up 1 Corinthians, just start reading 2 Corinthians. Like, it's like, okay, we're done with that. And now this. And it's another long letter where he details a lot of things that we don't apply properly today. There's a direct correlation here between as someone may prosper, as he may prosper, and what Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How many people have heard God loves a cheerful giver far too many times in their life? 
Right. I don't know why everyone's not raising your hand, except for those that are under probably, I don't know, 100. Because we talk about that all the time, don't we? God loves a cheerful giver. Give. God loves a cheerful giver. Make sure you're giving. Nobody ever talks about the words that precede it. Don't give reluctantly and don't give under compulsion. Don't be forced to give and don't feel like I have to give. Give because it is a sign of your faithfulness to God. So look at the two things that are said. In verse 2 of chapter 16, Paul says, as he may prosper. And in verse 7 of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, as he has decided. There are guidelines that the Bible Bible gives us for how we determine how we are to give. Certain people will follow certain rules of percentages and amounts and whatnot. And the Bible liberates all of the bondage that man has tied up. If you follow a percentage or you have a rule, that's fine. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But the Bible liberates that bondage and says, give as you prosper, as you determine. Give, that is your faithfulness. Give. As he may prosper, God loves a cheerful giver. Man, I just chuckled. I read it. I'm like, God God does love a cheerful giver. He says, his word says, God loves a cheerful giver, but not reluctantly and not under compulsion. If you're giving in those ways, please pray for a heart change, that you may be giving freely and faithfully, not because you feel that I, I better, or someone's going to, no, not here. This isn't the type of church where the pastor gets a hold of you and says, hey, I noticed you haven't been giving. Now, I like to know that people are giving because your giving is a sign of your faithfulness to God. But I don't know who gives what, and I'm not going to send you envelopes saying, hey, you missed a few weeks. I just want to make sure you have the opportunity to catch up. And you bet I'm taking punches at people. That's happening right now. There are churches that are sending envelopes to people saying, hey, we noticed it's been a few weeks since you sent your contributions in, so we just want to make sure that you're able to. Here's a self-addressed stamped envelope and your offering envelope to send in to us. Gross. Gross. Talk about compulsion. And you think it doesn't happen in our communities. This happens. Well-intentioned, I hope, churches are doing these types of things. No. As you may prosper... As you determine, it is a matter of your faithfulness to God. As God prospers you, you give of that to honor God, that the church may then put that contribution to work in ways that honor God. So let's go on to that next point. Paul says, on the first day of the week, put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, that there may be no collecting when I come. That's a strange way to end it. When, when I come, why, why is he saying this? I was thinking about this. Why is Paul saying that there may be no collecting? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul showing up to the church at Corinth? All right, everybody, I'm here. Uh, I'm glad to finally be here, but uh, let's start with the collection of contributions. Like, oh my gosh, I've got, I've got, oh, ah! You all know what it's like to be under the gun. You know what it's like when somebody's like, you. I walked past people selling cookies yesterday. You know what that is. Hi. See, it's really something when you know them. It gets harder. I knew them. Hey, I hope it goes well for you. <sighs> like, I'm just, I'm just not, like, you know that pressure, right? Think about the Apostle Paul showing up and says, it's time for the collection of the saints. Little, little cute girls everywhere right now are like, we got these delicious mint cookies. Do you want them? Yes, all of them. <sighs> we're, not to, we're not to give in that way. Right? That's an example for us to draw worldly on this biblical principle. When you feel, what you feel when the cute little girl, do you want to buy some? Yeah, I want to. What you feel there is 
reluctance and compulsion. I can't say no. Ah, take all of my money. The mint cookies are delicious. We don't give that way in the church. When, when you walk in these doors on a Sunday, we have a box that sits on the table. If you put something in that, if when you walk in, you go to put something in there and you look and all you can feel is I have to do this because if I don't, you need to be examining your heart. That is not how God calls us to give. If it is under compulsion, I have to do this. Not incorrect. We do have to do it as a measure of obedience and faithfulness to God. But if you're feeling that, you need to begin examining your heart. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I not liberated from the bondage that the Bible does not tie up on me? When I come, there may be no collecting. Paul's like, save it up now. Save it up. And this is where they get the implied reference that Christians were likely on the first day of the week coming together, putting all their resources together and storing that up. So that when Paul comes, the church in Corinth has already stored everything up. The contribution is given to Paul and he's going to go on here to say in verse 3 how that collection will be handled. It's been stored up. It's been set aside. It's been collected. Paul shows up and whoever you send with that, I'll go with them and we'll deliver it. Next point. How is the collection to be handled? The collection's purpose. The gift will be carried. We see in verse 3. I will send those whom you accredit, which means to condemn, uh, con- condemn, commend or approve. I will send those whom you select and approve by letter, whom you accredit by letter, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. The gift will be carried by those whom the Corinthian church commends to the work. We're putting forward Larry, Moe, and Curly. Here's our letter. They're taking the contribution. Great. It's been collected. It's been set aside and stored up. It's going in the hands of these men now, and perhaps even more importantly, to what purpose? To carry your gift to Jerusalem. That's a big point. What are they doing taking a contribution to Jerusalem for. Uh, History is fun to start examining here, so I'll give you a couple historical facts. We're also going to look at some biblical evidence that shows this, right here what he's saying, playing out. Uh, The church in Jerusalem has fallen on hard times by the middle 50s AD, and things aren't getting better for them. Things are actually getting drastically worse. In fact, by 70 AD, the Roman Empire is going to lay waste to the city. And virtually everything that we know about Jerusalem will be wiped from the pages of history to be rebuilt and cobbled together into kind of what we know of Jerusalem today. Then you're going to progress forward and you're going to run into problems with the Ottoman Empire and the wars that happened throughout the coming centuries, even into uh, the Crusades happening around Jerusalem. And that's in like 10, 1100. So as the centuries move on, you're going to have Jerusalem, which is the religious epicenter of the world. And you're going to have Jews, and you're going to have Christians, and you're going to have Muslims, and you're going to have anybody else that thinks they can claim a piece of the hot seat pie coming to Jerusalem to claim it. It's fallen on hard times by the middle 50s. This is important for us. If we look back in biblical history, the Bible gives us knowledge The Bible talks about in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that the church in Jerusalem, post the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and let's call it within even the first year, but the Bible is even more specific than that, 
the day of Pentecost on which the Holy Spirit falls on them is like 40 or 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then all this stuff starts happening. We're talking easily within months of Christ's ascension. All of the Christians who believed were all together. They have everything all in common. It says their numbers are exploding. Thousands of people added to the church. It says they're selling off their possessions. They're bringing what was raised. They're laying at the apostles' feet. No one was in need. Anyone who was in need received from the apostles the distribution of all the things that they had. They had set up the perfect socialist communist system. It's precisely what it is. And what happened? It fell apart. Persecution. Because when that's happening, Saul hasn't even given his approval of the stoning of Stephen yet. As this is happening, the church is like, oh my goodness, this is it. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? It's not for you to know the times and dates. But I'm telling you right now that within the first eight weeks after that, those people are thinking, this is it. The kingdom's being restored. And then all of a sudden, Stephen's locked up. And then he's killed. And a great persecution breaks out at the hand of the Jews among the Christians. And it doesn't ever stop. Hasn't stopped to this day. The persecution begins to escalate. We assume roughly 1 Corinthians is written in the middle 50s AD. Rome is sacked in 70 AD. Persecution is escalating rapidly during this time. And so now you have the church in Corinth who's a hot mess. Their conduct in the world is awful. Their conduct in the church is not any better. And you've got Paul writing to them at the end of his first letter to them saying, concerning the collection for the saints, follow these rules. Store it up, put it together. When I come, we'll send it to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is in need of help. Has nothing to do with Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. Has nothing to do with the Corinthian church. This is all about there are saints elsewhere in the world and they need us. And we can do something about it. Not just the saints among them, not just the work of the gospel outside of them. Right, pastor? Is this, are we looking at missions? No, 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 we're not. We're looking at relief, emergency relief, aid from Christians to Christians is what we're talking about right now. Acts chapter, I want you to follow these with me. I think I put them on the screen. Is there a reference up there with like a bunch of different references together? Yeah, let's go to the Acts 1 and Acts. I want you to see it. It's always important for me that you see in Scripture what's happening. I want you to see this all tied together. This plays out across the pages of Scripture, which is fantastic. The book of Acts could very appropriately be called the second book of Luke. The author of the Gospel of Luke is the author of the book of Acts. His recording is an accounting and an eyewitness. So Luke is a recording. I've, I've examined everything. Acts is autobiographical. When you read Acts, Luke is speaking. Acts chapter 24, verse 17, uh, Paul is talking, and by this point, he is, is he in Rome yet? I don't think he's in Rome, not yet. No, he has not sailed quite yet to Rome. No, uh, he is, I believe, in Jerusalem at this time, though. Fascinating point, he's in Jerusalem. Look what he says, verse 17. After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So here is Paul testifying to, I'm, I'm coming with help. I'm coming to bring alms to my people because they are in need of help. Would you follow me to Romans chapter 15? Romans chapter 15. Just want you to see this thread through scripture. 
Romans chapter 15, oh, neighborhood of verse 26 maybe. 20, let's start in 25. Romans 15, verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. Look what he says. Bringing aid to the saints. Look what he, he goes on. Look what he says. For Macedonia and Achaia, I need you to draw this connection. I just did this past week because I'm not the smartest guy. When you see Achaia, A-C-H-A-I-A, Achaia, this is the province that Corinth is in. When he talks about Achaia, he's referencing the church in Corinth and other churches as well, but he's referencing Corinth. For Macedonia, which is where, oh gosh, what's in Macedonia? Philippi? Thessalonica? I can't name another one right now. Those two. And in Corinth, or in Achaia, you have Corinth. You have the church at Centrea. So this is why every word that you read is so important. You start to piece these things. You're like, wow, I can see this unfolding. This is great. Okay, verse 27, uh, 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Man, I could go off on humanitarian efforts throughout the world right now. Because churches in mass are writing checks for millions and millions of dollars in hopes that one little child somewhere will come to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what we should be doing? Helping Christians. Churches should be helping Christians. If we can help somebody else after that, great. Our responsibility is to do good to the household of God first. When an earthquake happens, we shouldn't just be looking at how we can throw money to everyone in the area. We should be asking, is there a standing church? Do they have a living pastor? Do they have a living network that we can contribute to them to help them? Why? Because God's church is the number one humanitarian relief aid society in the world. No one does it better, does it more, has more at the disposal, and why? Why does no one have more at their disposal than Christians? Because our God owns everything. And so Paul here is like, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints. Because you can bet, by 55 AD, there are a lot of poor people in Jerusalem that aren't saints. They're ready to make a contribution to the poor among the saints. Why? Because a healthy church is the number one evangelism program in any single community. And New Testament Christians realized the more we strengthen the local church, the better the surrounding community will be because of the health of the local church. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. For indeed they owe it to them. Look what, I just want you to see this. I'm not going to dwell here, but look at what he says. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, right? Christians in Jerusalem are Jews. They were Jewish religious people who converted and became Christians. And what happened? When Christianity spread, all of a sudden Christianity is available to Gentiles, who the Corinthians, the Macedonians, the Galatians, they're all Gentile believers. Because of the Christians in Jerusalem and the persecution by which God used to spread the gospel, you now have Gentile believers in the middle of verse 27. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Wow, that's just fantastic. Can you imagine churches recognizing the work and ministry and the needs of other churches, supporting other churches? I mean, I'm thankful to run with pastors who work to support the network of local churches. 
But, but I've been in and around church all of my life, and it's new. Pastors have not been always working together. Most of the time, pastors are not working together. It's, listen, that's great. This is my team, and this is our bench, and you're not welcome. But everybody's like, oh, we're all one team. But nobody's exemplifying that we're all one team. Here, in first century Christianity, are Christians and church leaders showing us we are one team. Beautiful. We are on one team as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, follow me still. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. What, chapter 8? If you held your spot in 1 Corinthians, I hope you did. We're going back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Oh, chapter 8 in the fourth verse. Uh, You gave according to their means. Churches of Macedonia gave according to their means begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Did you catch the first part of the verse? Begging us earnestly to take part in the relief. The church in Macedonia is poor. They ain't got much. They haven't existed very long, but they were begging, let us help. We got, we got much, but we got, we got something. Let us help. Uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Let us help. Look what it says. I, maybe you want to underline or circle it in. Look at relief of the saints, not just giving for giving's sake, not to open an orphanage for little children who are destitute and don't have moms and dads, relief of the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, we might read a few verses here. Uh, superfluous for me to write about, oh, look what he says. To write to you, Corinthians, about what? The ministry for the saints. Look at this. So there's something of Corinth. Second letter, maybe something's changed, but he recognizes something in the church of Corinth. Look what he says. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying Achaia has been ready since last year. So the church in Corinth, a church in, let's understand that they were located in a place that had means. The church in Corinth was a place located that had means. And they're able to pull together a contribution. How much do you need and where's it got to go? We can do that. And they did it. And I said to Macedonia, they've been raising, they've been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. So now you have churches encouraging and inspiring one another. Wow, the church in Corinth was a hot mess, but they've got their act together and they're giving. We don't have much, but we can give something. Please let us help with the relief of the saints. Verse 3. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. Why? Because you're Corinth and you might mess it up. So that you may be ready, as I said you would be, right? That there may be no collecting when I come. When I get there, have it ready. Okay, the tie-in from 1 Corinthians 16 to now. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you, what, not being true to your word, for being so confident. Okay, chapter 9. Go down, chapter 9, verse uh, 12. Oh, no, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Pay attention. Relief of the saints in chapter 8. Ministry of the saints in chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver in the middle of chapter 9. Keep following me down. What does it say in verse 9? He, God, is able to supply. That's what verse 8 says. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. We give because God gave. Our giving is an example of our faithfulness to God who has demonstrated his faithfulness to us. Wow, it's fantastic. He who supplies every, he who supplies seed to the sower, verse 10, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Man, 
I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the verses around God loves a cheerful giver. Most of the time, we're just talking about churches giving money, like give your money, because we're a church and we say give your money. These verses, look what he goes on to say. Verse 11, you, Corinth, will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Like, wow, that's a good verse. You'll be generous in every way. If you give, you'll be generous in every way, and that'll produce thanks. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service. What service? Verse 1, for the saints. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings. As God's people unite to give to God's people who are in need, what do God's people do? Praise you, Lord God, for providing for us. Holy smokes, this has nothing to do with you giving not reluctantly or under compulsion or being a cheerful giver. It has everything to do with churches looking out for churches in other places. It's right there in the context of 2 Corinthians. Acts chapter 24, Paul is coming to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem to bring alms. Romans 15, he's writing to the Romans about uh, aid to the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, relief of the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1, ministry of the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 12, supplying the needs of the saints. Paul is writing to these churches to remember the need of other churches. 18th century Bible scholar Johann Bengel. What a name. Quote, to the Corinthians, Paul proposes the example of the Galatians. To the Macedonians, the example of the Corinthians. To the Romans, that of the Macedonians and the Corinthians. Great is the power of example. The church should be a giving church but not just for the ministry of the church. We don't just give for here. And the church should be a giving church first and foremost for the cause of the gospel, but not only the cause of the gospel. Because we have brothers and sisters who are in need at various times, and if we can meet their need, what are we doing? We're aiding the work of the gospel among them. Do you understand? Our giving is always tied to the ministry of the gospel. How can we give to help the cause of the gospel? Here is how it was laid out for the Corinthians. The church should be a giving church. Moving on, verses 5 through 9. church should be a giving church. The church should be a Lord-willing church. The church should be a Lord-willing church full of Lord-willing Christians. Right? Starts with me and you and then us together. The church should be a Lord-willing church. I'm not going to read through these verses, but this is what happens. Verses 5 through 7, Paul wants to spend time with the Corinthians. He lived with them for a, numbers of, for a number of months, I think even years, if I remember correctly, which I should, but I don't in the moment. Paul lived with them, lived his life with them, knew them and loved them, wrote two of the longest letters of the New Testament to the church at Corinth. He wants to go and visit them, but he recognizes he's only going to get there if God Let's him. I could just go. I could just up and go. But if God is not willing that I should go, I'm not going to get there. If God is willing that I should go, I don't know if God is willing that I should get there, but I definitely know that I should not go unless God permits that I go. Church should be a Lord-willing church. Side note, our unity in Christ 
should promote our specific local context. It should, it should promote us and should propel us into unity with the body of believers. Paul is longing, like, I, I long to visit with you. I long to spend time with you. Our unity in Christ should drive us to long to be together with other Christians. He says, I want to come and spend time with you, but I'll only do that if the Lord permits, because I don't want to do that just in passing. I want to stay. Verse 80 says, I'll stay in Ephesus. Interestingly, he says Pentecost. So now if we wanted to do the research, we could even pinpoint the time of Paul's travel to what time of year he's talking about. He would go on, he talks about even spending the winter in the middle of verse 6. Verse 80 says he will stay in Ephesus, but look what he says in verse 9. Why is he staying in Ephesus? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. It's a good reason to stay put. Wait, I, I really want to leave. However, there's a wide door for effective work, so I'm going to stay. But is it just that it's a guarantee that it's a wide door for effective work and it's going to go well? No, because look what he says. And there are many adversaries. Ephesus was a, they were a mess, idol worshiping. You can read about Ephesus and Acts. He's like, I'm staying. I want to come and be with you, Lord permitting. I will come and be with you, but for right now, I'm going to stay here because there is a door open for opportunity. His plan, his desire is not to stay in Ephesus. He stays there amid opposition, an open door for effective work against self-preservation because there are adversaries there. And so while writing at the end of chapter 15, Verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. While writing that, while about to write, verse 13, chapter 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. In between 58 and 13, 14, Paul is literally demonstrating how we do it. And how do we do it? We do it by realizing that God's purpose is far more important than our plan. Paul recognizes God's purpose here is more important than my desire. I want to do this, but it's not the Lord's will right now. I will do the Lord's work. There's an open door, so I will stay. Church should be a giving church. The church should be a Lord-willing church, recognizing God's will in God's time. In verse 10 and 11. He talks about Timothy. Oh, Timothy, I like that guy. The church should be a giving church. The church should be a Lord-willing church. And the church should be helpful. Look what he says. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Two things. There are two thoughts here. One, take care of him. Two, Timothy's coming into you guys on edge a little bit. Why? Because Timothy's a young guy who Paul has already had to write to saying, brother, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth, but set an example for the believers in life, in faith, in love, in speech, in purity. Set an example. Timothy, God has called you. I urge you to fan into flames the gift that was given to you through the laying on of the elders' hands. I urge you to be devoted to the reading of Scripture publicly. Be devoted to the work that God has called you to as an evangelist. Don't let anyone look down on you, but where's Timothy at? It's easy for you to say, Paul. People don't quite get me. I, like, there's something about Timothy. As you read through the Bible, he's, there's a bit of a timid nature with Timothy. Paul says, put him at ease. One, Corinth, accept him. Why? Look at the endorsement. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Oh, that carries weight with us, Paul. We got you. 
We're going to take care of Timothy when he comes to town. We'll take care of him. The church should be a helpful church. Put him at ease. Let no one despise him. Interesting, twice we have Timothy being referenced in the word despise. Let no one despise him. Let no one despise you. Wherever Timothy went, he had to deal with, these people don't really like me and they don't really want to hear what I have to say, but there's going to be a lot of godlessness in the last days and you should preach the word and you should be ready in season, out of season. I think that's what Paul said. Let me check what he said over here. You need to be ready in season, out of season because times are coming coming that are going to be like Timothy's messages are bold and what Paul tells Timothy to preach is bold and nobody wants to put up with him because the Bible's showing us that he was despised. This is an excellent reminder for churches to take good care of workers and ministers of the Lord, to rightly esteem them, not to put them on a pedestal, not to worship them. They're sheep. I'm a sheep. We're all sheep together, but there is the care of the church for ministers in the church. I'm thankful. I just need you to know from my own heart and for my family, we are thankful for the care that we receive and the love that we feel here. This is not a plea for me. It's a plea for us. This is a plea for us. Don't just take care of your pastors here. How can we look out for ministers that come in among us? How can we care outside of us? The whole context of what is happening here is outside of. Paul's not your, Timothy's not your pastor. He's going to come and stay with you for a time. Take care of him. Esteem him rightly. Put him at ease. Help him on his way that he may return to me. Don't put a stumbling block in front of him. This is a reminder for us to make sure that we are taking care of ministers among us. How do we apply it? Let's apply it. Let's sing. Go on with our day. Application was a little difficult this week. I came up with this one question. Pastor, I, I, I give to the church. Do we, do we give to other churches? It's a great question for you to ask of this church. What do we do? You should know if you make contributions to the village church, this is a reality of how we may put that contribution to work. Have we effectively done this? And I want to draw a line here. This is relief of Christians in distress. This is what the Bible is teaching us. We don't just give to other churches for the sake of giving to other churches. Can we help relieve pressure of saints? Yes. We would give to other churches to help them. If need comes available, if we have need, if need arises and we're able, we would do that because we see the principle here from God's word that we should do that. It's a stated purpose of the village church. In our founding documents, it is found that the church should be giving to the work of the gospel beyond itself. That's ambiguous, but if there are saints that need relief, if we learn of a church is demolished and we can give because persecution is something different in another country and we can help that, we would help that. I've got action packs sitting in this room. There's some on the table back there. That's a right now way that this church can help to give to persecuted Christians around the world. Yes, we would do that. Do we actively do that right now? No, because that's a decision that we should be led to by the Lord and no, these people need help. We can meet that need. We don't just throw money around. We still have to steward wisely. There's still a process for that, but yes, we would. Then two questions. Are you living a Lord-willing life? If the Lord permits. Are you, are you living that? Can the Lord disrupt your cute little tidy plans for his purpose? Because I, I think I need you to understand that I've lived this to an extent. And it's not easy. 
when God disrupts your plans. Can God disrupt your plans? If God can't disrupt your plans, I have a newsflash for you. He's not the God of your life. If God can't rearrange your cute little plans, he's not God. He is God. He has that right. Will you surrender to him in that? Will you surrender to God when he comes and says, that's cute. This is my plan. I want you to do this. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No. I mean, careful what you say and where you're at in your life before God. Are you a Lord willing Christian. James expounds on this even more, you foolish people. You say tomorrow we'll go and we'll do this and we'll do that. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is nothing but a mist and a vapor that appears and is gone. You should say, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it. Lord willing. Are you caring for those doing the work of the Lord among you? Not just me. I I appreciate your care. I appreciate your Concern for my family, I appreciate that very much. I appreciate the encouragement, the texts of prayer and encouragement that I receive. They're very th- I'm very thankful for those things. I'm not the only worker among us. Are you caring for workers among you? Are we? I started asking myself, gosh, am I doing this? I, I'm not sure that I am. I think that if we don't even have opportunity right now, we should at least be open to the thought that God may bring someone in here that we need to care for for a season. I can't define that. I can't put that into a box and tell you what that looks like and why we would do it or how we would. I can't do any of that. But I see the principle right here we should be ready to. Paul says to Corinth, take care of Timothy when he comes there. The church should be a giving church. The church should be a Lord willing church. The church should be a helpful church. We're going to move on next week in the rest of chapter 16. I'm looking forward to tackling verses 13 and 14. There's a verse at the end of the chapter I'm terrified for. Pray for me as I attempt to study and prepare to preach. Pray for you as you receive. Pray for one another as you receive the word of God and read ahead. Let's pray, and then we'll sing and go home today. Lord, we thank you for principles that we can draw from your word. We thank you, God, for your word, that it directs us and guides us. Thank you for every word properly placed, inspired by you. Father, help us. Father, help us to be a giving church. I thank you that we, we are, I believe we're exhibiting this faithfulness to you in various ways. Help us to be mindful, God, of your church global that may be in need, saints that may need relief that we can help. Father, as you determine, bring those opportunities to us. Father, we believe as we have learned through your word, as we understand your word, It's not there for nothing, so we know that it is not out of the realm of possibility for you to challenge us in this way. So help us, Father, if the time comes to be faithful to you. Father, help us to be a Lord-willing church. Help us to be Lord-willing Christians. Help us to recognize, God, that it is only according to your plan and your purpose, that all things are according to your plan and for your good pleasure. Help us, God, to be Lord-willing Christians and to be a Lord-willing church. Lead us, God. Father, find us helpful. Whether it is to minister to someone within our church, or whether it is to minister outside of the walls of our church body to another minister, another church, whatever it may be, Father, build in us and find us a helpful church for the purpose of your glory and your kingdom. You are worthy of praise, God. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us this week. 
If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's Word.